Hello, and welcome to History is Gay, a podcast that examines the underappreciated and overlooked queer ladies, gents, and gentle envies that have always been there in the unexplored corners of history, because history has never been as straight as you think. I'm Lee. And I'm Gretchen. And in this episode, we are taking on Nazi scum and talking about Magnus Hirschfeld, the gay Jewish sexologist and founder of the first LGBT advocacy group who hated Nazis. Oh, yeah. Hated colonialism. Yep. And won a place in our hearts. Yes. Oh, yes. He's he's a big fan of feminism, being gay and being poly and was very much not in favor of basically the majority of like late victorian or to like early 20th century society he's he's pretty yeah, awesome generally generally a fan of good things and and not bad things so it's going to be really refreshing to like have a conversation about somebody and say fuck colonialism and they agree with us right right and we're not going like this person was great except for that pesky colonialism right (laughs) damn it (laughs) and also Um, it seems what's interesting is that it's really timely we were the day we're recording this is the 15th but magnus hirschfeld was actually born and died on may 14th like he was born and died on the same day not literally the same day you know what i mean how many years later wow he got a lot done (laughs) accomplished so much in that 20 in that (laughs) less than 24 hours um but also i believe that was it today or yesterday that quist told me that the that the institute that he founded this is or the society Mm -hmm. the first society that he founded was founded around this time period as well so um oh man yeah the significant times yeah he's he's very timely for the middle of may yeah. We didn't even plan um, it. It just happens. <laughs> You'd think it that- just happened. It's it's lovely. Um yeah, so this is actually gonna be a a two part a two pronged episode. So today we're talking about Magnus Hirschfeld, but this is actually gonna be the first episode in a two part little mini series that we have that's just called Nazi Punks Fuck Off. Yep. I mean, this is really mostly just an excuse to use that as an episode title. I was like, Gretchen, I kinda wanna talk about these kind of things and I just wanna title it Nazi Punks Fuck Off. Right. I gotta figure out a good way to do this um but yeah so we'll have uh, another topic with another person for the next episodes this is part one part one i'm excited we've been very fired up right right if you if you hate nazis as much as we do then then these episodes are for you (laughs) yay because they're all about these episodes are for everyone they're all about fucking with nazis go home go away nope fuck off yeah we don't like you um (laughs) do you listen do you ever listen to john mulaney Yes. He's got that. Th- have you seen his new special? Movie. No. Where he's like, I'm no. not a fan of these new Nazis. <laughs> oh, God. I just thought of that I mean, right I think, now. I think any any Nazis, you know. Right. Well, he says he hates Nazis and then is like, and there are new Nazis now. I'm not a fan of these new Nazis. <laughs> I'm, I'm not a fan. No. Not, not. Not quite a an aficionado, right? Of the Nazis. But now we're going. We're doing OG Nazis. And people who OG Nazis, OG yeah. Nazis, and people who hated yeah, these Nazis. like like Indiana Jones style OG Nazis. Yes. Um, speaking of Nazis, uh, content warning. Yes. I mean, like Nazism, anti-Semitism is going to be pretty rampant. Uh, some some 
pretty ridiculous homophobia. Yep. Um, there's there's also going to be mentions of suicide. So if that is a, a trigger for anyone, just you know, be prepared that that will be uh, a part of some things. Um, it's not pretty. It's not like pervasive, but it is part no, of just it is part of Magnus Hirschfeld's research. So we will mention mm-hmm. it towards the beginning. So if you like, you can pick up with us probably in about twenty minutes or so, or some along the lines. But it won't be the whole thing. So like, you could maybe skip the first twenty minutes, and then yeah. you won't have to hear about suicide after that. And as always, we'll put it in our episode notes. Yep. We'll let you know where you can kind of skip. I mean, we should yeah. we should probably say a little bit of something. Thank you guys for being patient with us that we've been kind of off schedule this month. Uh, we've been doing lots of traveling. We've both been under the weather in various ways, had mm-hmm. to take some like personal time off to deal with, you know, life issues and some family stress and things like that. You guys have been so patient and wonderful. And But we just wanted to let you guys know that like this is hopefully an aberration. Yeah. But hopefully yeah, we'll be back. Thank you for giving us the space to yeah. to focus on some some self care, which we love. Nina on on Facebook specifically wished us well, so thank you, Nina. Thank you. Um, yeah, and yeah, we're excited to be getting back into it. It was very strange to like not be constantly researching. For I know. A yeah. Even if I wanted to, and even if I wanted to add things, like I was up in the mountains with no <laughs> any sort of internet or service for a week with a bunch of Xena people. That was fun. Uh, so yeah, today's going to be a people-focused episode, obviously, um, but we are going to be talking about social ramifications, as always. And then we'll end with how gay were they, our personal ranking system, about how likely it is that they weren't straight, as always. Yeah. Um, so... With that, Gretchen, do you want to start us off on our topic? Yeah. So, Magnus Hirschfeld. He was gay, socialist, Jewish, sexologist, sometimes called the Einstein of sex. And he's a pretty awesome guy. So, before we start talking about his his biography and his life, we're going to talk a little bit about the general social and historical context of the time period, just to kind of set the stage. A couple things to know. At the time when Hirschfeld was alive and doing a lot of his research, Things like suicide were taboo, like a very taboo subject, especially in German society. It was not something that anyone talked about. It was not considered a legitimate form of research, even in the medical field or in the psychological field, especially because in German, the word is Selbstmord, which is self-murder. So it has a lot stronger connotations, especially in a religious context. So it wasn't something that people talked about. So that's something to be aware of. Other things that were taboo that Hirschfeld didn't really seem to care about whether or not they were taboo. <laughs> um, things like female sexuality. Yay. Yeah, this is, we're at the, like the tail end of the Victorian period. So things like women having a sex drive were considered inappropriate to talk about. Women were expected to be chaste and pure and have no sexual desire. Male homosexuality was considered a deficiency in masculinity, and many believed it to be morally corrupt. So, for example, in Hirschfeld, like when Hirschfeld was in medical school, a gay man who had been incarcerated in an asylum for 30 years because of his homosexuality was paraded naked before the students like a laboratory animal and hirschfeld was yeah i know it's like gross that's so gross and hirschfeld was the only student who was revolted by such mistreatment everyone else even his best friend like viewed it as like normal and justified because society believed that it was so wrong that like it's okay to treat gay people this way which is just like all kinds of gross 
Do you want to tell us about the Harden-Uhlenberg affair? Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, so then you've also got the Harden-Uhlenberg affair. Of It happened between 1906 and 1909. So there was uh, General Kuno von Moltke, who sued journalist Maximilian Harden for claiming that Moltke had had an affair with Prince Philip von Uhlenberg, a close friend of Kaiser Wilhelm. So um, yeah, this is like the Kaiser's best friend was accused of having an affair with like a high-ranking general. Yeah, by a, by a reporter. And so Hirschfeld was actually an expert witness for Hardin, and he, he testified that Molka was gay and that there was nothing wrong with that, and he strongly believed that proving such prominent members of the army slash government were gay would, you know, help his, his cause for legalization. The whole, like, hey, every, everybody's, we're everywhere, everybody's here. Like, let's e- just, e- let's look, just even, even, like, important people are gay. It's fine. You should, it yeah, should be legal. Don't worry about it's, it. It's fine. He uh, testified that, quote, homosexuality was part of the plan of nature and creation, just like normal love. As one can expect, this led to some outrage and claims of, like, fake science and propaganda. Hmm, Think of the children. Where where have we ever heard about that? Gee. Yeah. Um, So Moltke's ex-wife, Lily von Elbe, uh, who we like had briefly mentioned before? We will probably be doing a whole episode. I, d- I think this is a different. Movie. This is a different person. Oh, oh wait. Oh no, that's right. Yeah, this is Lily oh, von Elba. No, rather than different. Lily Elb. I know. I had the same thing happen to me because like Lily Elb comes up later. Uh, like yeah. the Lily Elb that you're thinking of comes up later because comes she is connected to. Our- right, because she's connected to Hirschfeld's research. But this is a different <laughs> Lily Elb. This is Lily von Elba, who was like. Ex-wife this, of this is of what a, happens of a when, when Lee spends their time researching another person for a week and a half. No, I literally had to do a double take <laughs> myself because I wrote this. I wrote this part of the outline first, and then I was writing later, and I was like, "Wait, didn't I just write that name? What? Oh, where have I heard that name before?" Oh, right. <laughs> Two totally different people. Though. All right. Well, so then, totally different person. Uh, so Molka's ex-wife, Lily von Elba testified that he only had sex with her twice in their marriage and was open about her frustration, leading some to claim she was mentally ill because... Ladies don't want to have sex. Yeah, of course. Why would Um, they want that? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, You know, surprising nobody because he's fantastic. Hirschfeld also testified that her sexual desire was natural. The jury ruled in favor of Hardin, but the judge overturned it. Because he was an asshole. Because, yeah, because he's an asshole. And then there was a second trial. Uh, Hirschfeld was threatened by the Prussian government with a revocation of his medical license, so he testified differently this time. This time, he argued that uh, the relationship was homoerotic, but not sexual, and while female sexual desire was natural, Elba was suffering from hysteria due to lack of sex, and her testimony could be discounted. So, if you can't see me, I'm making a gagging face. Yeah, gagging Gagging all over the place and playing with the kitty. Huh. Oh um, yeah, I'm gonna. I'm probably gonna have to. I'm gonna need to kick her out at some point because she'll get in the <laughs> way. But but yeah, um, guys, my cat just came to visit. <laughs> yay! <laughs> um, so the trial led to major homophobic and anti-Semitic backlash, as you know, expected. And Uhlenberg was a prominent anti-Semite, so the Volkish populist movement backed him, claiming that he was an Aryan straight framed by homosexuals and Jews. Right. Because there could be no other reason why all these things are fucked up. No, no, no. Just always blame it on the gays and the Jews. And the gay Jews. And the gay Jews. All right, just a second. I'm going to remove my cat. Hi, Hi, baby. Why don't you get the door open? 
I swear that door was shut. <laughs> right. So the reason that we pulled that little snippet from from his life rather than including it as part of the biography is because it, it really illustrates the kinds of taboos that Hirschfeld was like working up against in his lifetime. Because like he was literally the only person who was like, this is fine and normal. And everyone's like, ah, women can't have sex drives. Gay men are bad. I just, I want to know, like, I don't know. I want to know what, I want to know, like, what happened, what happened to, to have him just, like, initially just have this idea growing up in a society that was clearly different. I mean, obviously being gay yourself, you know, skews right. it a little bit, but, like, to just be bewildered that everybody else is like, no, this is not okay. Be like, really? I, it, oh, it, it seems pretty normal to me, but okay. Right. Actually, uh, actually, we will get to that. In just yeah. a little bit after the next section, we're going to be ta- we're going to be talking a little bit about where it was that Hirschfeld got some of those ideas. But before we get to that, we're going to talk a little bit about white supremacy and the uh, sexual aberration of the so-called lesser races. Fuck colonialism, part one <laughs> in Europe during the time period. So this has been called the hot and tot apron debate, which is super gross. Even calling yeah. it that is super yeah. gross. That's super. what they call it. Super gross. What this comes from is many, many Western European scientists at the time believed that the women of this tribe in Southern Africa called the Khoikhoi, they called them the Hottentots, which is where the name the Hottentot apron debate comes from. They believed that these women had abnormally lar- enlarged labia, leading them to be more likely to become lesbians because, because, okay, whatever. Sure. Sure, why not? Well, this theory co- is based on a woman named Sarah Bartman, which is her German name. She was a Khoi Khoi woman who had been, like, taken from Southern Africa and put on display in Europe, as they did at the time. Like on tours, too. Like, like yeah. all over the place. Right. Like, on tours all over Europe. And she had, like, a, a large – she did have, like, a, a large – ass and like a larger labia and that was you know she of course was considered like like at the stupid gross oriental fetishization of of women was like paraded around and of course scientists rather than like actually going to these places and actually studying the actual people just like made generalizations based on this one person and we're like oh clearly all women of this tribe have you know genitalia that look like this and clearly this is why they're all you know so many of them are lesbians fuck colonialism it's gross it's awful and then you meet hirschfeld so this is this is like the whole background for like hirschfeld at the time when he's like studying all of this so he argued that this theory so-called theory was false and that other than being black the Khoi Khoi women's bodies were actually no different than German women. Turning the arguments of the anthropologists on their head, he argued that if same-sex relationships were common among the Khoi Khoi women, and if the bodies of the Khoi Khoi women were essentially the same as Western women, then Western women must be having the same tendencies. If it walks like a duck and looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, which is just must my be a lesbian. favorite thing for him to be like, no, their bodies are basically the same, but if there are a lot of lesbians in this society, and their bodies look the same as Western women, clearly there must be a lot of Western lesbians. <laughs> and he was not wrong. He was not wrong. And that's <laughs> just my favorite. Yeah. So, I mean, this 
He believed in a spectrum of sexualities that undercut the binaries of the time, as well as undercutting this idea of, like, white supremacy, because a huge part of the argument that was put forth by these other scientists were like, well, these, like, societies are primitive, and that's why they have so many, like, same-sex – that's why they have all this, like, same-sex tendencies is because they're primitive – And we know that they're primitive because they have them and look, their bodies are different and therefore we're superior and better. And it's like, it's just all sorts of gross. And he basically just walked into that. was coming at the same time that like phrenology was really big, right? And like fucking measuring people's like cranial cavities and, you know, trying to be like, oh, well, the, you know, the, the bones of these people are different and the size of this you know, this person from this tribe's head is larger and therefore trying to say all this bullshit. Right. Trying to like, and that's the grossest part is like them trying to root this racism and Mm -hmm. colonialism and all of that wrapped up in it in science. Yep. Which is even scarier than just being like, well, my religious beliefs say. Yep. Because that's really what it was, was attempting to use like you know, the studies of, like, science and biology and, like, comparative anatomy and all of that to, like, prove why white people are better than non-white people and why, like, men are better than women. And Hirschfeld just comes in and is like, nope, sorry. Because he he argued that, for him, he believed that, like, sex and gender originates more in the brain than in the genitals and should not be viewed as dichotomous, but rather as a spectrum of possibilities. So... Okay, and let let me remind you. This is, like, happening in, like... This is late 19th century. Yeah. This is late 19th century that you have, like, a a German-Jewish guy arguing that, like, gender is a social construct in a spectrum, that, like, sexuality is a spectrum. He also argues that, like, race is a social construct. This guy was pretty fucking awesome. The one last thing we need to talk about is that Hirschfeld... He sounds like he he stands out a lot. You know, that, like, he's so different from the rest of what we tend to think of as being true in especially Germany. Why, why is this guy coming out of Germany? Germany of all places. The Nazis really do overshadow mm-hmm. so much of what came before them that people either forget or don't know that, like, the several decades leading up to the rise of the Nazis were actually very progressive and very Some liberal. Some of the most progressive places in the entire, like, entire Western world. Right was in Germany um, at this time. And a huge part of that was had to do with romanticism because romanticism was the idea of you have this like heroic individual could attain freedom to make their own laws in defiance of society. After the Enlightenment, like you just have this idea that like someone, a single person could like stand up and make their own rules if they're strong enough, which leads to a lot of progressive thinking. You have like a the, this cult of friendship among artists, which bordered on the homoerotic, sometimes didn't border on it and just became homoerotic. <laughs> like, bordered on and was homoerotic. France was a huge haven for gay people during this time because being a, being gay wasn't criminalized because around this time period, you have the French Revolution and part of that was um, the law that you, the idea that you couldn't make laws based on religious conviction. Mm-hmm. And so criminalizing homosexuality was one of those things that they were just like, well, we can't do that because that's clearly religiously motivated. That's why that's why Paris was such a big haven for a oh, lot yes. of that. And, and next episode in part two of this, we're going to be talking about all of that and yeah, all of the lovely lesbian circles, Sylvia Beach, um, and her her like lesbian bookshop coffee yes! shop too yes! um, becomes a prominent. Uh, 
prominent element of of the story of Claude Cahoon, who we're talking about next. So kind of all over the place. Less repressive than, you know, many people like remember and right, right. Right. Robert uh, Beachy's has a book called Gay Berlin, Birthplace of a Modern Identity that, like, I want to read now. I wasn't able to get my hands on it in time, but, like, I read a bunch of stuff about it. And he argues that modern public discourse around gay rights has its roots, actually, in 19th century Berlin. And a lot of people like to date it back to, you know, Oscar Wilde's trial, which was 1895, or even Stonewall in New York. But he traces it actually back to 19th century Berlin and argues that the Nazi repression has largely erased German history of gay rights. So even now, if you go to Germany, I believe that they celebrate their pride on the same day as the Stonewall riots. So like even within Germany itself, they've kind of lost sense of their own place in like LGBT history. Gosh, that just seems like a big pattern that keeps happening. Yeah, there are a bunch of things that we could, there are a lot, I mean, the book details all of the, like, dates and things for things to happen, but, like, we just wanted to, like, point out that, like, this has its, this, these are deep roots. When By the time Hirschfeld is born, like, certain things have already been established. In 1859, yep. Schopenhauer argued that, peder, he called it pederasty, but by which he meant gay male urges um, yeah, were and universal. In, in general around this time, too, like, that was a frequent i mean oscar wilde was using it too um yep. you'll you'll hear it come up more when we talk about cahoon but like pederasty was like a, f- a frequently used just term for like classical gay male urges like coming from the classics and thinking about like greek thought and greco-roman right, right. behavior rather than specifically like men with young boys right So um, Schopenhauer argued that this was universal and natural and present in every culture, Um, though he also believed that, like, homosexuality was more common in older men to prevent procreation. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Sure. Whatever. (laughs) In uh, 1867, you have the lawyer uh, Karl Heinrichs Ulrich who went before the Sixth Congress of German Jurists to urge the repeal of laws criminalizing gay sex and said – um, people with a, quote, sexual nature opposed to common custom were being persecuted for impulses that nature, mysteriously governing and creating, had implanted in them. So, like, Hirschfeld was not the only one to say that mm-hmm. this was natural and universal and, like, multicultural and historical. There are people who came before him. This was – I, I – yes, read. <laughs> yes. This is great. Um, this is this is a really lovely quote. Um, just it, he he wrote a pamphlet called Gladius Furens, which is raging sword in English. Um, and he writes, "I am proud that I found the strength to thrust the first lance into the flank of the Hydra of public contempt," which is potentially the most homoerotic way to phrase that. Right in a pamphlet called the Raging Sword. Yeah, I mean, it's great. call it like the angry phallus. And be done with it, basically. (laughs) Uh, I also really like just like the lance, and it brings me back to just like thigh fencing, and it's all shield banging. It's all very martial. Just just like queerness and military imagery. It's great. It's uh, it's the universal language, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Oh Um, my god, sword lesbians. Sword let yes. Okay, anyway. <laughs> right, like it was an Austrian named Karl Maria Kartbeni who actually coined the term homosexuality, and that was in 1869. In the 1880s, you have Berlin police commissioners who are not prosecuting gay bars and just kind of being like, yeah, whatever, sure. They're not, they're 
not doing anything wrong, fine. The first gay magazine was published in 1896. In Germany, in 1897, Hirschfeld founded the first gay rights organization. By the 20th century, you have this body of literature that had emerged around, you know, gay experience. One advocate of which coined the slogan, staying silent is death. Oh, gee, that should be familiar from people, anyone who's familiar with the AIDS movement, because the AIDS right group ACT UP came up with silence equals death. So... Same terminology almost 100 years later. People at this time period were bemoaning the negative depictions of homosexuality, debating the ethics of outing people. By the 1920s, you have, like, gay films and music and movies. The first sympathetic portrayal of a lesbian was in 1931, and this is all coming out of Berlin and Germany. Like, our episode on, like, the silver screen actors, you have Marlena Dietrich. She's from Berlin! Like, <laughs> yeah, like, no surprise. No surprise there. Yeah, like, you had, you know, Germany was kind of one of the epicenters of, like, a gay intelligentsia. And a lot of that had to do with, like, German romanticism and free thinking and, like, art and, and all of that. And that's, I mean, Hirschfeld grew up in this. So, on the one hand, it sounds surprising. Like, it's impressive that he was able to continue pushing for that when society was changing around him. But on the other hand, like, he doesn't come out of nowhere. This was present. Which brings us to the last thing we have to talk about, which are the Nazis and the Volk the Volkish populist movements, which have their roots in romantic nationalism. So the another part of romanticism was this kind of like sentimental patriotic interest in like your, you know, your country's folklore and local history and kind of a back to the land, anti-urban, anti-modern populism. A desire for, like, a self-sufficient life with, like, a mystical relationship to the land. A huge part of it was a reaction to the cultural alienation of the Industrial Revolution and kind of progressive liberalism of, like, urban life and modernity. And gee, doesn't this sound super familiar? <gasps> this is the episode where I'm like, oh, look, history is repeating itself. Yeah, yeah, this, is why, this is why we do history, is yeah. hopefully to be like, y'all fuckers did this already. Stop. Right. right. Of course, no one listens to us. Right. So there was a kind of like racial adoration developed in other movements among the Volkish populist movements that led to very anti-Semitic sentiments. I mean, as well as anti-communist, anti-immigration, anti-capitalist, anti-parliamentary, anti-democratic, you know, these all go together. Homophobic. Anti-everythings. Anti-everything. And after World War One, the word Volk, which just means folk, it just means like people, became increasingly politicized. And became associated specifically with ethnic and racial nationalism. On the left, Volk meant more like middle class or like proletariat kind of. Like so on the leftist side, like if you're talking about the Volk, you're talking about like the middle class people, like your average everyday man among the conservative right. However, it meant race, which is where then you it gets tied up with Nazi ideology as both Hitler and Goebbels actually couch their beliefs in Aryan superiority, like, directly in the terms of, like, Volkish populist movements, and argue that National Socialism was an inherently, like, populist movement. So, all of these things are going on around Hirschfeld. So, so Hirschfeld. Who, who was Hirschfeld? Who was Magnus uh, Hirschfeld? <laughs> Magnus Hirschfeld. Uh, so, he was, he was born uh, on May 14th, 1868, and died... On May 14th, 1935, uh, he was born in Kolberg, Poland. He was an Ashkenazi Jew. Uh, he was a physician and a sexologist and uh, frequently called the Einstein of sex in the 1930s, to which he said that he would prefer if Einstein were called the Hirschfeld of physics, which, which is, is one of my favorite things that anybody's ever said. <laughs> He's amazing. 
And uh, one of our one of our articles that we looked into uh, said that when his family advised him to like study something more worthy and respectable than like why why do you want to study sex and the gays? Um, and they were like, why don't you study something wonder you know something more studious and and respectable as cholera? Um, you know, arguing that research into homosexuality wouldn't bring him any acclaim or joy, he replied, "What are you saying? That cholera brings you more joy than sexuality?" <laughs> Seriously, God. this guy is like my favorite. <laughs> like, he he can't really be my wife of the week because he's a gay man, but I want him to be my platonic soulmate of the week because <laughs> seriously, like, I want this guy to just like I just want to like be around him all the time. He sounds fucking yes. amazing. Yes, he could be your gay BFF. There you go. Yeah. Um. So yeah, he believed homosexuality was normal, natural, and found universal uh, universally throughout the world, and as natural and innate you know he believed people shouldn't be punished for their nature right he inherited 19th century relativistic german anthropological stances that insisted on a basic similarity of all humans and he rejected like cultural or moral superiority of western traditions he was like ah we're not we're not so great you right. know, there's, just like, there's nothing super special about us. Like, why do we keep propping all of this up as opposed to everything else going on? Right. In just like other places. Pe- people are people no matter where you go was literally like his stance was just like, we're just, we're just people. People are always people. I mean, he traveled quite extensively, too. Like he his first trip around the world was in 1893 to 1894. And like cross-cultural studies were at the heart of his research from the very beginning in 1893 to four. Like he got his doctorate in medicine and then traveled to the U.S. Actually got heavily involved in the gay subculture of Chicago. And he noted the similarities between that subculture and the subculture in Berlin. And that was how he actually started to formulate his theory of the universality of homosexuality around the world. And then did research in Rio de Janeiro, in Tangiers, in Tokyo. And that was just his first, like, world tour. He visited what were called human zoos. Here's another fuck, colon- fuck colonialism part two. Um <laughs> The human zoos, which we kind of touched on a little bit earlier, but like he went to them, which is as part of these like great industrial exhibitions of Berlin um, in 1896. And these were places where people from other cultures were put on display for Europeans to like gawk at and be like, ooh, look at the weirdos who live wherever. Seriously, fuck colonialism. This is so – whenever I read stuff about this, I'm always like, oh, gross. Like I'm really like viscerally uncomfortable. But it's – these are things that happened. These are right. things that white mm. people did. White so. people are terrible. So Hirschfeld, he would go. But when he visited, he was actually visiting for research. And through the translators would talk to the men and women who were there about the se- about sexuality in their cultures, which led him to write. All that research eventually became his book, The Homosexuality of Men and Women, which was published in 1914. But like the roots of it are in 1896. So it's one of those where you're like, that's really gross. But also, like, kind of good for you, Hirschfeld, that, like, you're going and you're not going to gawk. Like, you're going and being like, these are people and I just want to talk to them. And I want to talk to them about their culture and about their life and about their sexuality and what that's like. And that's one of those things that's really interesting about Hirschfeld is that he never hesitated to combine his scientific pursuits with social reform. From the very beginning of his career, he became interested in gay rights because so many of his patients committed suicide. So... Here we go. We're, this is going to be the one section where we're talking about suicide. So he became interested in talking about gay rights because so many of his patients committed suicide or had scars from attempted suicide. 
He was actually the first to offer statistical evidence that homosexuals were more likely to commit suicide. He created these anonymous questionnaires and handed them out and people could, you know, write their responses and return them. And he came to the conclusion that three out of 100 gay men committed suicide every year. So 3% of gay men were committing suicide every year. 25% had attempted suicide. Mm -hmm. And the other 75% had entertained suicidal thoughts. And argued that life was unbearable for gays in Germany at the time because of the the criminalization of homosexuality, which mm -hmm. in 1871. So right at the you, you notice right at the beginning that he's intertwining like his his scientific research with like the desire for social reform. Mm -hmm. Um he never had one without the other. He was also deeply affected by the trial of Oscar Wilde in 1895. In 1905 he actually visited Britain to meet Oscar Wilde's son and also went to a reading of Wilde's The Ballad of Reading Jail by a group of gay students from Cambridge, and he called the experience the most earth-shattering outcry that has ever been voiced by a downtrodden soul about its own torture and that of humanity. So he, he published a pamphlet on homosexual love called Sappho and Socrates under the pseudonym T.H. Ramian in 1896, and uh, in 1897, he actually uh, co-founded the Scientific Humanitarian Committee with a publisher named Max Sperr, lawyer Edward Oberg, and the writer Franz Joseph von Bülow. And the goal of this organization was to defend homosexual rights and repeal something called Paragraph 175, which was the section of German penal code that had criminalized homosexuality since 1871, you know, arguing that it encouraged blackmail, right? It was the... it was. The argument against uh, the argument for repealing paragraph 175 was like, hey, if anybody just doesn't like anything about that person, they could just be like, hey, yo, did you know that he's a homo and like completely discredit somebody? So that's what right. they were trying to argue in order to get this thing repealed. Right. The motto of the committee was justice through science, which I mean, it speaks to his belief that like better scientific understanding of homosexuality would eliminate. He believed that like a. The more people knew about homosexuality and that it was normal and that it was natural and that it was universal would eliminate social hostility and prejudice. So do you want to, do you want to tell us <laughs> yeah. about how that so became one adapted? Of, um, so, so I love the justice through science, but what I, what I really loved is that there were people um, – there were, some, you know, some of the more radical supporters of the SHC even went so far as to adapt the French Revolution battle cry um, and would, you know, go around shouting uh, as an extension of it, you know, liberté, fraternité, égalité, homosexuality, which Gretchen and I have decided uh, once we get once we get March. our merch game up, that's that's going to be a merch. Shirt. We got, oh, we yeah. got ideas. We got ideas oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I want to own that shirt. Same. Right now. Um, so the bill to repeal paragraph 175 received minimal support in 1898, and he reintroduced it in the 1920s, and it, you know, continued making progress um, until the Nazis took over. Right. Um, yeah. In 1929, they were they were like about to repeal it, and then you know, Nazis. Fuck them. Come the Nazis. Just fuck the Nazis. Yeah. Uh, but other things that were going on at this time, right, is, like, Hirschfeld was going around taking, like, policemen on tours of gay bars to prove that they weren't, like, dens of debauchery. Um, and, and they, you know, they found out that they were, like, pleasantly surprised that all these people that they were meeting were witty and intelligent and stylish and well-behaved. <laughs> right? Like, the police commissioner actually <laughs> said that he was, like, disappointed that everything was so pleasant because he wanted to see, like, Sodom and Gomorrah. 
Yeah, he was, and was he like, was like, oh shit, like, this isn't what I thought I would see. These Everyone's are just normal so people. Clean and great. These are just like <laughs> stylish people yeah. hanging out and talking and drinking. So another really interesting thing about Hirschfeld is that he believed that gay rights and women's rights were closely intertwined. And those were like the rights for women was something that he also advocated throughout his lifetime. In 1905, he actually joined the League for the Protection of Mothers, which was founded by Helene Stoker, I think. I think there's an umlaut there. I'm so bad at my German umlauts. I can never remember how to pronounce them. <laughs> I got to get back um, to the Duolingo. You just got to like, your yeah. lips got to yeah. stuker. <laughs> that sounds kind of Swedish. Anyway, yeah. she was actually she was actually involved, the same woman, Helene, was involved with the Scientific Humanitarian Committee as well. And he uh, championed the decriminalization of abortion campaigned for the repeal of paragraph 218, which was the ban on abortion in the German penal code. Um, he fought against policies that banned female teachers and civil servants from marrying and having babies. Apparently that was a thing. Here in America, it was just like, if they get married and have babies, we fire them. So I guess this is the flip side. They just can't get married and have babies. In 1918, he wrote a pamphlet with his sister, Francisca Mann, celebrating the women's right to vote and said, quote, the eyes of the world are now resting on German women. So it was after World War One, or no, right before. Eyes on you. I know. So he's he's not just like a champion for gay rights, and I just love that. Like to him, these were all of these things were like connected and intertwined for him. As you can imagine, uh, this did not get, just did not meet with a lot of approval from from a lot of people. Yeah, not everybody um, was like, oh boy, G Willikers, this is super great. No. I know. Not everyone was us who was just like, Hirschfeld sounds delightful. Oh, I love him. I yeah, want to be his he, best friend. <laughs> he uh, he came into conflict with many other more conservative scientists and colleagues at the time who believed that homosexuality was abnormal, degenerate, and a choice. You know, so there you the go. The stories, some of the stuff we mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. But he was also, like, attacked by more militant gay rights campaigners. Typically the ones who believed in, like, a the forced and violent outing of homophobes. Adolf Brand, for example, was one of his major critics who called him comfortably middle class in his sentiments, especially his focus on education and social change rather than, like, direct violent overthrow and mm-hmm. action. Well, and there were, there were even um, other, like, queer groups that were frustrated at him for, like, rocking the boat too mm. being like like we're we're okay we're okay being on the you know on the underground kind of of this like why are you bringing so much attention to this this can only bring bad things which you know right. there's there's always going to be resistance towards change and towards progress you know from outside and also from within right right cuz you even had those groups who believed that gay act like gay proclivities made someone more masculine you have the like hyper masculine like misogynistic it's like the it's the the misogynistic gays that are like oh well you know i am a man who likes men that makes me like peak man virulently masculine like toxically masculine like gay rights groups no fats no femmes right exactly was like they he he faced a lot of criticism from them too Especially because he paid a lot of attention to effeminacy, to lesbianism, to things like cross-dressing. Basically, like, the widespread misogyny, nationalism, and anti-Semitism of the time, like, made him a huge target, even among other gay people. Because it wasn't just that he was gay or even that he was gay and interested in things like lesbians and cross-dressing. It was that he was also Jewish and he was Mm -hmm. also socialist 
and also anti-imperial and like there were just lots of reasons why people didn't like what he had to say. He was actually attacked by like Volkish populist activists in the 1920s and declared dead on scene even though he survived. And when it comes to the Nazis, like he had a lot of things working against him. Um, according to one of our sources, um, quote, the Nazis persecuted Hirschfeld not only on account of his non-Aryan extraction, but also because of his open acknowledgement of pacifist and socialist tendencies and his work in sexual science, unquote. Yeah, he just had a big old target on his back. He, which yeah. is why, like, to me, it's so impressive that, like, he survived. Mm-hmm. Like, right? Yeah. It's crazy. So let's see. So speeding along here a little bit. So in 1904, he wrote a book called uh, Berlin's Third Sex, which was kind of an early look at gender variance in what we had been talking about a little bit earlier about, you know, the gay subculture in Berlin and its thriving drag scene and trans community, which we're going to get into that as a whole other episode. Um, But just the idea that like he's already publishing this work years and years and years before, you know, works of other sexologists and, and ideas about gender variants are happening. He co-wrote an acting in a film called Anders als die Andern, which means different from the others. In 1919, it had one of the first homosexual characters ever written for cinema, and the goal was explicitly gay social reform. The story is that a male protagonist is blackmailed by a male sex worker, eventually comes out instead of making payments, then commits suicide after his career is ruined. The film ends actually with Hirschfeld opening up the penal code and striking out paragraph 175. So unlike the barrier gaze stories that we're more familiar with after this time period, the inclusion of suicide was actually a condemnation of homophobia Mm -hmm. rather than a moral about the dangers of the gay lifestyle. Like his whole point was like, these things happen and it's terrible and awful and it's a tragedy, therefore decriminalize homosexuality because this is not a thing that should happen. Homosexuality is normal and people shouldn't be killing themselves over it. So maybe make it legal. And of course, it met with a lot of resistance and many claimed that his praise of like the French laws were, you know, un-German because nationalism was a thing. I, I love, I just love the title card of the film. Which said, okay. the persecution of homosexuals belongs to the same sad chapter of history in which the persecutions of witches and heretics is subscribed, is, is inscribed. And there's, there's more to it, but like just to, to yep. like boil it down to something like that, like this is a, this is, this is just another witch hunt. Um, I, right. I thought that was so powerful. That was yeah. really great. Oh, yeah, it really is. Because I think the title card ends with, may justice soon prevail over injustice in this area. Science conquer superstition. Love achieve victory over hatred. And it's one of those where you read it and you're like, we've literally been saying the same thing for 100 years. Yeah. like How is this that, coming out of 1919? Right. 100 years ago, someone was saying these things. And like, I feel like you could literally put that on TV right now and, and no one would blink an eye. Like, it would someone sound should. totally at home. Ugh. <sighs> Any of our listeners. Flood the airwaves. Yes. Yes. So yes. that brings us to his Institute of Sexual Research. After World War One, he opened the Institute in 1919. Um, and one thing to, to, to know about this is that up until 1918, German laws disenfranchised most ordinary people and the ruling class was responsible for enforcing paragraph 175. After 1918, you have universal suffrage with the Prussian government which became a stronghold for the Social Democrats who believed in repealing Paragraph 175. So after World War I, you have a huge government shift. And the Social Democratic Prussian government, headed by Otto Braun, 
ordered the Prussian police not to enforce paragraph 175. So they didn't repeal paragraph 175, but the police were ordered not to enforce it. So right after World War I, um, Prussia became a haven for <laughs> gay people all over Germany. So that was why Hirschfeld had the freedom to found the Institute of Sexual Research, which housed things like his research, his archives, and his library, provided educational and medical services like contraception, sexual education, prevention of STDs. It housed a museum of sex, a research for public uh, for the public and many schools to visit. Lots of celebrities came to stay there, people who wanted to understand their own sexuality. There were like 20,000 people a year going to this. And remember, this is like, like decades before Kinsey. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Several decades before Kinsey, several this decades. is going on. Yeah, and people even, you know, were were housed in the complex for the Institute, right? So rooms were available for rent or free, depending on, you know, what people needed, including Dorchen Richter. So th- this was a person who who was staying in the Institute. And they were the first trans- one of the first transgender patients to receive sexual reassignment surgery, the first to receive like a complete surgery at the Institute. And then Lily Elb, a transgender woman and the first publicly recognized male to female transgender person. And he actually, I think Hirschfeld actually in, like intervened when she was arrested on the streets for like for like like female impersonation, and he basically right. intervened in that and brought her to the institute. So it was a, it was a haven for quote unquote transvestites, which was actually a term coined by Hirschfeld. And so you know we've evolved our language, and you know this is what we would deem transgender today. But he's frequently credited with distinguishing between homosexuality and, like, transness as separate identities, too. First to use the term transvestite in 1929, and uh, Harry Benjamin was greatly inspired by Hirschfeld's work as well. Yeah, he's he's a pretty widely known, like, researcher in, like, transgender identity and things like that. So a lot of the people that, like, we in America might be more familiar with, people like Kinsey or Benjamin, are people who were, like, inspired and directly drawing on Hirschfeld's work. We just don't know about Hirschfeld. So the institute offered shelter from abuse, performed surgeries, offered many, actually offered many of the um, trans transgendered people jobs, though they were mostly menial jobs like maids, but there weren't like a wide variety of jobs available at the institute, but the institute would hire them. The institute even helped many register their new names, new names that fit their gender identity, and many of the institute's trans employees and activists were given the chance to represent themselves at conferences hosted by the institute as well. So, like, he was, like, a pioneer in, like, gender identity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Huge we, pioneer. I just, I mean, we're going to talk about what eventually happened to all of this research and all and the Institute. But, like, just imagining how much further along we would be as a society, as a Western society, understanding all of these things about trans identity had this not been ultimately destroyed by Nazi Actions. Yes. Yeah, and we'll, we're going to get more into that because, right, oh boy, right. do I have a fire about that. But well, that's coming yeah. up next yeah. because it happens while he is on tour around the world. Mm-hmm. So in 1930, with the overthrow of the Social Democratic Chancellor, Hirschfeld rightly <laughs> predicted that the rise of right-wing author- authoritarian government meant that there was going to be no place for people like him in Germany. Makes sense being a communist Jewish gay man that you're like, oh, maybe... Maybe this isn't maybe this isn't a place where I belong. So he goes he went on a world tour, which was ostensibly to talk about sex, but really he was trying to find a place to emigrate. 
He started in the U.S. where he tailored his message. In English, he talked about the acceptance of heterosexual, heterosexuals. I can't even say heterosexual. Um, I'm so gay. So while he was in the U.S., he like tailored his message. In English, he would talk about the acceptance of heterosexual sex and marriage. But if he was speaking in German, he would talk about the legalization of homosexuality and, quote, love's natural turns, which is his way of discussing the belief that there was a spectrum of sexuality and that all of it was natural. He, he like, knew that the U.S. was super racist and homophobic and xenophobic. So he's like, right. all right, I'm going to... I'm going to talk about this with these folks, and then anybody who can understand me in German really knows what's going on. I'm going right, to talk about right. this. I'm going to help the straights have good sex when <laughs> I'm talking to the straights in English. But when yeah. I'm talking to the Germans, I'm going to talk about what I actually want to talk about. <laughs> right. And I mean, it was all a marketing. I mean, it, it, it makes sense. Like, it's shitty that he had to do that. But also, like, in America, like, when they found out. When they found out that that was actually what he was advocating for was gay rights, like someone like a journalist, I believe so, it was someone in the Hearst, dug up oh, that he was an advocate Hearst, for gay uh, rights. And um, that ended, literally ended any chance of him being allowed to stay in the United States. He was pretty much kicked out after that. Then he moved on to Japan where he did the same thing and tailored his discussions focusing on like how a greater openness about sexual matters would prevent STDs, became very interested in kabuki theater where like the female characters are played by men, which again was one of those things that for him indicated that Western ideas about masculinity were like a cultural construct and not at all biological because you have societies where like male actors playing female characters are like totally accepted. He met with and praised Japanese feminists who were urging women's suffrage. Then he moved on to China where he met fellow sex researcher Li Shui Tong, who traveled with him for the rest of his tour and will come back to Li later. Do you want? Do you want to? Do you want to do? Do you want to fuck colonialism yeah, part three? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, uh, <laughs> in Indonesia, he actually caused an uproar by comparing uh, the Dutch imperialism to slavery, and they were like, "Get out of here! <laughs> we <laughs> don't want you. We don't want you. Shush, shush." In India, he actually supported Indian independence, um, saying, quote, It is one of the biggest injustices in the world that one of the oldest civilized nations cannot rule independently. So, you yes. know, he's looking at the British and going, um, fuck off, get out of here. Um, he criticized white supremacist Catherine Mayo for her book that denigrated Indian sexuality and um, and was very interested in the Indian art of love, a.k.a. Kama Sutra. Yay. Yep. Woohoo! And, and he goes on to Egypt, and he said, quote, To the Arabs, homoerotic love practice is something natural, and that Muhammad could not change this attitude. And uh, met Egyptian feminist leader Huda uh, Sha Sha'ara... Ugh, I can't. Sha'arawi? Sha'arawi. Yes. Uh, who popularized going unveiled, which Hirschfeld uses evidence that gender roles could change. Yay! Woo! Yeah. Yep. And he then he went on to Israel, and though he was not a religious Jew, he did say that being there moved him, um, and was generally supportive of Zionism at the time, though he also expressed distaste in what he saw as a lot of chauvinistic tendencies in Zionism. So back in Germany in 1932, there was a coup that deposed the more liberal Prussian government and led to a crackdown on paragraph 175. In 1933, Hitler is appointed as chancellor, and four months later, four months later, on May 6th, Hirschfeld's Institute was sacked, the staff was beaten, the premises were smashed, all of the books were removed for burning, and the institute was declared, like, closed permanently. And this brings us to, like, the most, like, both of us were so mad 
when we realized this that okay everyone has probably seen that famous photo of like the nazis burning books it's in like every single fucking history book like like newsreel footage too like any documentary on the holocaust you've ever seen there's like this this newsreel footage of this gigantic bonfire of books and papers being burned by nazi youth groups right want to know what the fuck that is that's hirschfeld's research yeah that is that is documentation from the institute of sex (laughs) That That's all of his that queer knew, research. That is everything that we knew as a Western society about homosexuality and trans identity and gender fluidity. And I'm very angry. I was so mad when I heard that his research was burned. And then to find out that, like, literally, like, the photo that I associate and grew up my whole life associating with, like, Nazis burn books was all of it's the burning of queer research. Like, it just yeah. makes that photo like, like even that that more right that like we it's, don't even get to have that it's it's like, bad enough that like oh hey here's nazis burning books like that is terrible enough and then to have that can like to have that erased even further to have right. us to have us as a community to not even be present in the knowledge of the erasure like mm-hmm. physical erasure of our history is so infuriating Yep. And it was so huge. It was like 20,000 books. Mm-hmm. Like, more this than is that. like more like, than 20,000 books. It's just like a huge, like vast, like library. And some of it was his research and some of it was just his collection mm-hmm. of things from around the world. And you just like, as you were saying, Lee, it's just like, where would we be as a society? Mm-hmm. What would we know as a society if we had gotten to have this? Like, if all of this had not just been destroyed, and then the fact that it was destroyed be erased from our history, like... I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get real nerdy here. Are you, are you a, a, a Stargate fan at all? Uh, have you ever seen Peripherally, I have seen so, several episodes. So, uh, like, weirdly enough, like, this, this reminds me of in the, in the, um, spinoff series Stargate Atlantis, the main okay. antagonists are the Wraith. And they're this, like, race of beings that, you know, feed off of, like, human energy, blah, 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 blah. But they, like, they go around the universe going to planets and just, like, raising the society. And, the like common th- common core theme throughout the entire show is they continue like the, you know the stargate team keeps like visiting all of these different communities that are at various levels of like um societal uh development and mm. you learn that like a society had gotten to like the point of industrialization or the point of scientific movement or the point of this and that and this and that and then the wraith came and destroyed everything and they start back from like the bronze age you know and like that's what it feels like it feels like we right. had built ourselves built 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 and then someone came and tore it all down and we had to start completely over and it's just right. so disheartening to think about where we could be like would mm-hmm. we still be fucking having conversations about whether trans people can use bathrooms right now right right like would we have had with the whole like everything with like caitlin jenner or like any person who comes out as trans like we wouldn't have those those mm-hmm. stupid people fucking making arguments about like yeah it just yeah. like where could we have been if not for the nazis where could we have been if not for the refusal to treat the AIDS epidemic. Where would right. we be if not? Right. And yet right. we persist. And, and yet we persist. And, y- and yet we persist. And I think that that is 
That is the takeaway right. here is like, all right, they literally tried to burn us down, but we came back stronger right. than ever. Right. Because that is the heartening thing is like, this was this was something that was happening 100 years ago. And it's and it's and me and me and that's why we have this podcast because this is our history and we've literally always existed, and we're never going to go away because because we are as Hirschfeld said we are normal we are natural we are we are just as you know biologically you know normal as anybody else so like we're always going to come back because you you can't fucking get rid of us because yeah. because nature says fuck you if you try and do that <laughs> yes. <laughs> So, so, so yeah. going into the going into the conversation about you know what what the Nazis did in terms of um, like the queer community, we have our not so fun segment this week. Uh, right. The word of the week, which we we put this week as the pink lists or or pink the pink triangle. Which Gretchen, you want to launch into that? Right. Yeah. We'll, we'll probably at some point do it a more in-depth analysis of like queer symbols and kind of the history and outgrowth of like queer symbols and, and representation. So, but this was on theme. So the pink inverted triangle was used in concentration camps to identify a prisoner as gay. There were lots of different colored triangles and, you know, the the Jews had two yellow triangles superimposed on each other that made a star of David. But that was how the the Nazis would identify what crime, supposed crimes, crimes in quotes, mm-hmm. people were in concentration camps for. So the inverted pink triangle was used to identify someone as gay. Prisoners who were both gay and Jewish would have like a pink, pink inverted triangle over a yellow normal triangle. And the pink lists are the name for the lists of, of men that were engaged in, you know, quote unquote, homosexual activity. And a lot of the other huge tragedy to come out of what happened at Hirschfeld's library is that they not only burned his research, they then took the lists of like his clients mm-hmm. and the names of people who had either been to the institute or you know asked questions, and and the Nazis used those to compile their pink lists to put people in concentration camps. So not only did Hirschfeld have like the positive aspects of his research destroyed, but the rest of his research was then used to oppress other people, which is just gotta be like. The I biggest kicked. I can't even imagine what it I felt like. I can't even imagine the guilt. I mean, right. especially considering like the fact that he he had such a history with feeling guilt at right. the um at the plight of of his community, like his guilt over the suicide of the suicides of you know his his gay male compatriots was what primarily led him into this research and to have all of that work done and then see everything that he had done be weaponized against his very people must have been horrific and to to be so far away watching this happen and not being able to do anything about it yeah i can't even imagine i I, yeah i can't the one the one cool thing i will say is that the pink triangle has been reclaimed that is one symbol that has been reclaimed by the gay rights movement as a badge of pride. It's like the second most well-known symbol outside of the pride flag is if you see a pink triangle. Some versions have a, a male, female, and genderqueer symbol superimposed on it. It'll have like a circle and you'll have one in each quadrant or one in each like corner of it, which I honestly think Hirschfeld would love that, like given his views of like gender um, and gender identity, like I think he would love that. And I think now that I know, like now that I know Hirschfeld's relationship with like the pink lists and all that comes from like now when I see those triangles especially the ones with like the gender mm-hmm. markers on there like I'm just gonna think to myself like you know what I bet he would say that's one of the best things that could possibly come out of that yeah. is that like we find a way to like 
reclaim that. Now I'm so, feeling yeah. really sad. Yeah, this one, this one ends a little bit. I mean, it's a, it's a little a bit of a one. bummer episode. So he had Hirschfeld right while while this is going on, while the institute is being sacked and destroyed. He he was on tour on world tour and. He, I think he like he, did he stop in like Switzerland or something like that. I can't. Remember I believe what so. It was, um, and so he had he had hoped to return to Germany and like start his work up again. Right. But you know, with with all of this going on, he declared himself in exile and actually ended up moving to Paris, where he he lived until his his death in 1935. Um, he yep. he died of a heart attack. But that that wasn't the end of his work. No, no. He, there was a publication, one of his works was called Racism. It was published posthumously, posthumously, whatever, posthumously. That I was like, I know I'm saying this wrong, <laughs> says the linguist. <laughs> so in it, he argued that, that Nazism and the strong racism associated with it had deep roots back into the 18th century Enlightenment. He considered it to be a natural extension of modernism rather than aberration. Most historians... Um, nowadays, and even people at the time would say that, like, oh, Nazis is just like, oops, like, well, Nazism is just a fluke, that it's just like a weird extremist fluke. Hirschfeld, at the time that the Nazis were going on, said, no, that's bullshit. Um, building for a long time. Right? Like, arguing that the racism of the National Socialist regime was only an extreme variant of prejudices held throughout the Western world, and that the only difference between Nazi ideology and racism that he saw in other nations and in Germany was of degree rather than kind. And once again, it's one of those, like, oh, gee, this sounds familiar. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, like, basically the like the same argument that we're having now about, like, our current presidency and the rise of white nationalism, because there are people who will say, like, oh, no, this, this is, is a, just this a fluke. This isn't my America. This, this isn't is, my America. Where is this coming from? And you're like, yeah. no, 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 no. This is what America has has been and stood for for years. It's just that you haven't been paying attention. Yeah. And that's yeah. basically the argument that he was making in the 1930s about the Nazis was like, mm-hmm. no, 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 no. The roots have been here for a really, really long time. Just this no one paid attention. This didn't pop up out of nowhere, people. No. <laughs> this is, no, I mean, because like to him, he believed race was a social construct and should not be, it sh- he, to him, it shouldn't even be it, it, within the scientific discourse mm-hmm. unless you put it in quotes to show that it's a questionable, you know, idea. But like he didn't believe race was real, which is. Which is true. Race is race is not biologically real. It's it's a social construct. It's bullshit. People love power in any right. way they can exercise it. So let's invent an entire category of difference. Right. Before we get on to why we think he's gay, which is which, for some I of mean, the, the fun things, <laughs> we do think it's important to point out some of the, the areas where his beliefs might not have been so... Awesome. He did believe that all people were a mixture of male and female, which is interesting. However, this did lead to some kind of problematic ideas, which were based on where science and cultural beliefs were at the time. Namely, that, like, gay men and lesbian women were kind of an intermediate sex. That was, like, biologically determined at birth. This was, like, earlier on in his research. Mm -hmm. That they were, like... He started to, like, he kind of moved away from this later. But still, his, like, propagation of, of these ideas really allowed them to kind of take hold to, and took a while for them to kind of dissipate from society the idea of like third sex that like if that like gay people were like a third gender that uh he Which also goes back to ulrich too ulrich's right um, oh yeah right yeah and we'll we'll talk about that um 
you know, we'll probably have like an entire episode on those kind of things. But yeah, we're our word of the week next next time has some fun fun stuff that we go into Look. with that. So spoilers for next time. Gee, um, gee, there's a there's a reason we put all these things together in like yeah. a two part episode. <laughs> Thematic. <laughs> he also believed that like male homosexuals were effeminate by nature and like possessed by a female soul in a man's body. I guess again, like this is earlier on in his research, but these are the kinds of things that like, as you said, Lee, like his espousing of these ideas early on in his career like led them to be propagated in a way that was unhelpful and um like he one of the things he argued for was that children with indeterminate gonads should be registered as either indeterminate sex which is like yay good job intersex or male which is kind of less exciting um male the default right Right, like it. He believed that that most cases of indeterminate sex would end up developing um, more male characteristics at puberty, and also believed that the um, male to female transition would be easier post puberty than female to male. I don't really know why, but like, uh, but yeah, it's one of those like male as default. His but, his uh, belief in the in the universality of homosexuality, you know, while while commendable, didn't always like pay attention to the individual cultural context. You know, it's kind of like you know saying, well, this is how it works here, so this is exactly how it must work in different places. And so it's it's a commendable idea, but also it kind of you know sweeps under the rug that like, well, okay, but we can't understand everything in this exact same context out of well out of context. Right, and it's one of those, th- like, and some of his arguments could be construed as implying that colonization is good for the colonized. From what I have done reading into, like, the, the criticism of those beliefs, I think some of it is out of context, and some of it I do think needs to be taken into the wider context of how he seems to be very, very anti-colonialist, very anti-imperialist in general. The only other big deal is that in he was initially very pro-world, pro-war in World War One. Um, though he did become more pacifist later in his life, he early on believed that the jealousy of Germany's, it was like that, that like everyone was jealous that Germany was awesome and that's why they want to fight Germany, which is kind of not that great. But we also have to remember that like he, he knew that at some level, most of the people around him didn't think that he was a proper German because he was, you know, Jewish and communist and gay. And I, so it, do think we have to take some of those statements in the context of like his desire to like prove to other people that he could be a good patriotic German, mm-hmm. like prior to his be- understanding that like I just have no place here because the Nazis are going to kick me out. It was like he hey, just seems people yeah. who are gay and Jewish and all of these other things can also be good patriotic Germans, right? I think. The great thing about reading Hirschfeld is that so much of it is just like, hey, maybe he could be slightly more nuanced if he were, like, born now. Mm-hmm. But, like, for his time, like, he's such a, like, nuanced, progressive person. So it's not like we're – there aren't any, like, glaringly obvious flaws with him as a person. We just, you know, needed to point out that, like, he's a person just like the rest of us. couple yeah. things about his legacy, you know, just – Because of him, like, the first gay rights organization in the U.S. was founded in 1924. The first gay and lesbian center in Ireland was the Hirschfeld Center, founded in 1979. The Magnus Hirschfeld Society, founded in 82, has been responsible... 1982 has been responsible for tracking down whatever of his lost records that they records that they could find. So he is a person with a lasting legacy. I mean, and we owe a lot to him, even if we could owe him more. So, Um, uh... 
I mean, you know, we've talked about there. There's there's pretty, you know, pretty uh, obvious <laughs> reasons why why we think Hirschfeld is gay, mainly because he said so, um, and devoted his you know entire work to it. But but we're gonna move on to our our kind of next section for why why do we think what what specifically about Hirschfeld and his work was what we're calling gay. Well, I mean, uh, the first thing we could say is, like, in his film, different from the others, which he participated in, he did use the word us, you know, when he's talking about how, like, um, what matters now is to restore honor and justice to many thousands before us, with us, and after us. So, does seem to imply he's part of the community. But uh, the, the the bigger thing is 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 that he had... He's boyfriends. He had boyfriends. He had boyfriends. Um, yes. He had a. There's Carl Geis, his his life partner, one of the people he stayed with the longest. Um, so he was a German activist and a museum curator, and he lived together with Hirschfeld in the second floor of the Institute for Sexual Research. Um, they were well known in the Berlin gay scene, and they both liked to cross dress. Um, and uh, Hirschfeld uh, was was well known <laughs> in this in this uh, community as Anti Magnesia. Which is the best drag name I could ever. I think know, of. right? Um, and uh, a British American writer, Christopher Isherwood, described Geis as um, a sturdy, pleasant youth with a girl's heart who long ago had fallen in love with Hirschfeld, his father image. Carl still referred to Hirschfeld as Papa. Um, I mean, he was called by others the woman of the house, uh, enjoyed decorating their home, doing needlework, and managing Hirschfeld's wardrobe. So I love, I love him. Yes. Yes, he's great. Hirschfeld also had a lover, Li Xutong, who we mentioned earlier, who he met in China on his world tour in the early 30s. He was a Chinese sex researcher, sex researcher, and they met while Hirschfeld was on world tour. Li's parents, like, knew and were supportive of both his orientation and his relationship with Hirschfeld. They actually wanted him to become the, quote, Hirschfeld of China. And they actually threw a farewell party when they left. Like, I just love that they were, like, so supportive of their gay son and his boyfriend, which is just, like, so heartwarming. Yeah. Hirschfeld actually lived with both Lee and Geese in France from 1932 onward. So he's queer and he's poly because he lived with his two boyfriends. Yeah, they've got um, two hands. They were actually both of these these men were named as Hirschfeld's heirs when he died. Um, but he stipulated that you know they had to use they had to use his his uh, his money and you know resources uh, for sexual research and not personal use. So you know right. he was even even in the fear that like everything that he he did would be destroyed. Like he put things in place in the right. event of his own death to make sure that his work continued to go on. Right. Unfortunately, Nazis again. So Gies inherited the library. What part of his inheritance was whatever was left of the library and objects that had been saved from the Institute. And all of these were, everything was lost. Everything that, that, that Gies inherited was lost when he committed suicide after the Nazi invasion of Czechoslovakia. And his heir, the lawyer Karl Fein, was deported and murdered by the Nazis in 42. So, like, it made it through to, like, went from Hirschfeld to Geese to Fine, and at every level a little bit survived until Fine, and then even that was lost. Yeah. Fuck the Nazis. Just fuck fuck them. So we wanted to, and I wanted to end it with this quote from one of our sources, Ross, because this was just, I thought this was such a great summary of Hirschfeld as a person. So he says, 
I closed Gay Berlin with a deepened fondness for Hirschfeld, that prolix and imprecise thinker who liked to pose in a white lab coat and acquired the nickname Auntie Magnesia. The good doctor had a vision that went far beyond the victory of gay rights, narrowly defined. He preached the gorgeousness of difference, of deviations from the norm. From the beginning, he insisted on the idiosyncrasy of sexual identity, resisting any attempt to press men and women into fixed categories. To Hirschfeld, gender was an unstable, fluctuating entity. The male and the female were abstractions, invented extremes. He once calculated that there were 43 million 46,721 possible combinations of sexual characteristics, then indicated that the number was probably too small. He remains ahead of his time. <sighs> what a God, good... What a, what a good point to end on. Right? Yeah. Right? Uh, uh, so with that, so, how we've gay. got our How Gay Were They ratings. How, how Gay Were They? Gretchen. Okay, anyone with two boyfriends and goes by the nickname <laughs> Auntie Magnesia is pretty fucking gay. <laughs> like, 15 out of 10, man. If you're, like, you got your gay boyfriends and you've got, a like, a cool-ass drag nickname, like, you're pretty fucking gay. Pretty super duper gay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm I'm right there with you. I mean, this is this is another one that broke the scale, like... Everything right. that everything that he did was so instrumental to the under, to the understanding of of sex research and queerness and gender identity, and it's such a shame to lose that. So yeah, that's like a fifteen or twenty out of ten for me as well. Um, right. And also, he just sounds like really like sassy and fantastic, and right. You know, I uh, like I want to go back in time and you know see him see him. I don't know, like, move his booty in a drag bar in 1920s Berlin, please. Thank you. Well, he's, well, like, also, escorting like, the policeman. Also, science to me. Right? Please. God. Yeah. You just sound so amazing. All right, so to close it off, before we close it off, we've got some fun uh, pop culture tie-ins. If you're interested in Magnus Hirschfeld, his film, different from the others, I don't know if the full thing is available in the United States, but there are clips. We will put links to clips on our show notes, so you can check that out. I believe that they have English subtitles. The HBO docuseries Real Sex, which aired in 1998, actually had a segment on him in episode 19. There is a film called The Einstein of Sex, which premiered in 1999. Um, there is an English subtitled version available. We'll find links to that. Put that in our show notes. And then also, apparently, Transparent. Transparent has depictions of Hirschfeld, played by Bradley Whitford. And if you've seen pictures of Magnus Hirschfeld, which we will have in our show notes, it's actually a pretty good casting. <laughs> it's a pretty good casting. Pretty good. Yeah. Like, I would never have thought it, but as soon as I read it, I was like, oh, okay, that works. Yeah. Bradley Whitford. Who knew? Pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, I know it makes me so happy that like if if we can't have if we can't have Hirschfeld's research, we at least have Hirschfeld's legacy, you right. know. And like, right. I, it makes me glad that there's at least a couple of depictions of him in popular culture because like, how else do you make people aware of this that aren't like us, Gavin Claus, that just you know decide to <laughs> write fifteen page papers on somebody and go through obscure articles. <laughs> right exactly like even and even people yeah there are people who might know who he is even if they should know more mm -hmm. yeah and so uh with that that's it for today's episode you can find us online individually gretchen you want to tell these lovely listeners and folks where they can find you upon the interwebs uh, uh well when i'm not gushing about 
gay Jews who punch Nazis, metaphorically speaking. I'm writing nerdy media analysis and fangirling over, uh, currently it is Steven Universe, all the Steven Universe, crying about Steven Universe, singing Steven Universe songs, <laughs> feeling all the Steven Universe feels. Right now my life is Steven Universe. I am doing nerdy reviews and stuff for thefandamentals.com. Or you can find me at my personal website, gnellis.com, or find me on Tumblr and Twitter as at gnelliswriter, all one word. Lee, what about you? So when I'm not uh, in a Nazi punching mood, which is pretty rare, um, I'm usually <laughs> talking about comics and queer TV over at at a paradox in flux on Twitter, or, you know, I don't know, like going up into the woods and, you know, doing archery and weird making cool making zena. leather bracelets making leather bracelets and doing weird cool xena things at xenite retreat or going to other cons or cosplaying that's that's my those are my hobbies so if you are out and about in the world you might you might see me doing those kind of things <laughs> <laughs> history is gay podcast can be found on tumblr at history is gay podcast twitter at history is gay pod and you can always drop us a line with questions sessions suggestions or just to say hi at history is gay podcast at gmail.com please send us more emails we love getting them we tell do. us stories tell us stories about you know any of the cool people from history you're related to you know queer or not we just kind of want to hear about that um somebody you know came into our our inbox and told us that they were uh, related to an infamous murderess which is always fun nice. um, more stories like that we would love to feature these kind of things especially Especially if you're, you know, related to a queer mode that we love. Also, if you are enjoying the show, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Um, it helps more people find the show and we can expand our awesome community. Hopefully we will be having merch and things like that soon. So mm -hmm. stay tuned for that. And and stay tuned for our next episode, which is, you know, going to be continuing this Nazi punks fuck yes. off theme. Uh, so if you want to do a little bit of, you know, fun looking into it beforehand, uh, this is probably one of the one of the only times we're we're not going to make our next episode a surprise. So <laughs> in in the next two weeks, uh, have fun getting ready to hear about Claude Cahoon, the genderqueer anti-fascist fighter. So Oh, they sound fucking amazing. Yeah. I um, approve. So that's it for History is Gay. Until next time, stay queer and stay curious.